If the testimony of the Bible and the witness of many, many people who have had these near-death experiences is correct, then at the moment of death, something profound changes and we move on. Our eternal souls actually leave the body and they go on. And the scriptures teach that for the faithful and even the near-death experiences of ordinary human beings corroborate this, the faithful go on into the presence of God, into a place that the Bible calls heaven. I suggested last week that the Bible speaks about this place only in metaphor and simile. That the full reality of what is to come is something we can only begin to touch with these minds and with our senses and that it is better by far than even the images given to us in the scriptures. But what the Bible teaches about these things is sufficient for our needs now. It gives us enough information about what is to come to be a comfort, a challenge, and an encouragement to us now. And here are some of the big ideas we touched on last week. Heaven, that place to which the soul goes, is where God is now. God touches and penetrates this life, even this room where we are sitting at this moment, in significant ways over the course of our life. But in a way that uh, is much larger The place to which our souls go is one where the full presence of God is experienced in a far more, dramatically more palpable way. And because of that, because God is present there and experienced there in this deeper measure, God's worth is also recognized in a way that it doesn't really get fully recognized here. He is honored in that place in a way we never fully seem to be able to recognize and honor him here. Nobody has any doubts about whether he exists in that place. Nobody has any more questions about what he is like. The encounter with him is so dramatic that as a result, heaven is a place where his will is done. It's a place where everyone lives in the rhythms of his kingdom. Everyone knows the character of the king and responds to that character. They obey him. They advance his purposes. They do these things not out of fear of him, not out of a sense of dutiful obligation towards him, but as the only natural fitting response to the glory and beauty and power and wonder of who he is and the goodness of what he desires. Heaven, the place to which our souls go when we die, is the place where God is now, where he is honored, and where his will is done. But there is more to what the Bible says on this topic than that. And that's what I want to think about with you this morning. The scriptures teach that heaven will also be a place of relating and rejoicing such as we only get to begin to taste in this life. 
I was reading recently a book by Chuck Swindoll. And in the book, he shared the story of a copywriter for the Cleveland uh, Plain Dealer newspaper by the name of Robert Manry. Manry spent most of his days, in effect, chained to a desk, writing copy. He was good at it. It paid the bills, but it was not his passion for life. Inside of Manry, there lived this rather radical dream. He was a man of the sea, stuck in the middle of the country with a heart for the sea. And he had this passion that one day, a dream that one day he would actually sail the Atlantic Ocean. And he would do it in the smallest boat anybody's ever made the journey in. It was such a wild-eyed dream, he shared it with few people, but one day he revealed it to his wife, Virginia, and to his amazement, she responded by saying, go for it, go for it. And so he did. Manry began making preparations. He obtained a leave of absence from his workplace. He had hoped that maybe uh, someone would... Uh, grab hold of his story, buy the rights to it, and it would enable him to cover the bills for this particular adventure he was going on, on and all the lost wages, but nobody seemed to care. And so, on October the 31st, 1965, Robert Manry climbed into a 13-foot-long boat, not even the height of a basketball uh, uh, a key, or length of a basketball key, and and he set out from Plymouth, Massachusetts, into the open sea. I can't remember how many months later it was when he finally sailed into the harbor of, I think it was Falmouth, England. And and to his utter shock, There standing on the dock was his wife, Virginia, and she was beaming. And behind her stood about 40,000 people, waving their arms and leaping and shouting and cheering and welcoming Robert Manry home. Beloved, that is your destination. Heaven is a place of reunion. It is is like the best family reunion you could possibly create in your mind. The book of Genesis declares that when God's faithful servant Abraham breathed his last and died at a good old age, the Bible says, an old man and full of years, he was gathered to his people. And this same phrase is repeated upon the news of the death of all of the next generations of his family. They were each time at point of death gathered to their people. Jesus unpacks the image further in the New Testament When he says, I say to you that many will come from the east and the west and will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. Heaven 
is a glorious place of reunion. Now, I don't know what the last family reunion you went to was like. Maybe it was a wedding, maybe it was a funeral, maybe it was just one great get-together marking some significant milestone in somebody's life. But I do know that for many of the people that I've talked to, the thought of going to be with certain family members forever, (laughs) sometimes even the church-going kind, maybe especially the church-going kind, may not always feel like such a blessing. Some of us are honest enough to confess that if heaven is filled with some of the people we know, then it could start feeling like that other place after a while. Right? I mean, let's be honest. It's not not that we want it to be that way. It's not like we're not all trying to get ready for that kind of future. We, we come to worship here, I think, most weeks, uh, trying to become more heavenly-minded and hearted than we are. Uh, we, we leave here. Most people, I think, leave, I do, leave here committed to being more generous and patient and kind and loving and forgiving and all of those good things. And then about five minutes after walking out of here, we're yelling at the kids and we're irritated with our spouse and we're jockeying for position in the parking lot. And, right? It's hard to get fit for heaven. Maybe it's just me, but I wonder, how is heaven going to stay heavenly for other people if the me that I experience now is there? Good question. Well, did you ever do that experiment back in science class, maybe in elementary school, where you, where you, you took this magnet and you took some smaller piece of metal, maybe it was, uh, maybe it was a paperclip, and you rubbed the paperclip against the magnet. Raise your hand if you remember doing something like that at some point in your life, right? What happened? What happened to the paperclip? It got magnetized. Exactly. What really happened was that the orientation of the electrons in the magnet uh, were charged in such a way, moving in such a direction, that they exerted an inexorable force upon the electrons in that smaller piece of metal, in that paperclip. And, and, the, and the electrons in that paperclip, which had sort of been a, a, going in a bunch of different directions, lined up in the, in the same kind of way that the, that the magnets did and became like that larger metal, that greater metal. This is something akin to what the Apostle John tells us is going to happen for you and for me. Dear friends, he writes in uh, his first letter, now we are children of God. In other words, we already exhibit some of the Father's characteristics. And even in a crowd of imperfect family members, you will find some of his characteristics present. 
But like all children, we are still very untrained in a lot of ways. We are going every which way in a lot of ways. We have these emotions and these thoughts and these impulses that still ping around inside of us like electrons gone wild and which produce these words and these actions and these consequences that are much less heavenly than we would like. Isn't that right? I mean, do you ever think to yourself, I can't believe I just said that. Oh, I'm ashamed I'm thinking this. Oh, I enjoy thinking this. (laughs) Or I, I don't believe I did that. Why do I keep doing that? Raise your hand if you ever had that experiment. Okay, I thought so. I'm not, it's good to not, misery loves company. Some of us are trying to do something about this. Okay? We are trying to do something about this. We've embarked upon this intentional spiritual journey that, that could be likened, I suppose, to trying to rub ourselves up against the magnet of God's character in such a way that it starts realigning these, these impulses of our heart and these thoughts of our mind. And so we take up these soul training practices um, to do that. We come to worship, we um, pray during the week, we may use a devotional, we, we may fast, we may uh, go through times of silence and solitude, we may study the Bible, we may gather with a small group of other people to, um, to reflect on what God has to say to us and support each other. These are ways, in a sense, of of rubbing ourselves up against the magnet of God's character so that he can begin to realign us. And if we're undertaking these soul training practices, you're getting realigned. I mean, it, it, it's very rare that somebody is, not, is faithfully involved in these soul training and spiritual disciplines and that, that the character isn't starting to change in some way. And if you're not seeing changes in your character, look at your spiritual disciplines. Ask yourself whether just doing the worship thing, is, is, you know, is that just slapping the, the, the paper clip up against the magnet and then taking it away? Is that going to really change things? Maybe it needs to be a more regular rhythm for you. You're still seeing some change. While, while we're in this world, however, the reality remains that we're kind of like rusted paper clips. Right? We're kind of like rusted paper clips. We've been corroded by, 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 by sin and the effects of the, of, of the world. Our, our flesh, in a sense, is just sort of uh, infiltrated by, by the power of this sin. And because of that corrosion, that rust, it's hard to get full contact, contact with God. You know, Even though we rub up against God in, in various ways, it's hard to get full contact for things to to, to really change. John goes on to say that what we will be has not yet been made known. We know who we are today. What we do not fully get yet is what we will become, John says. For we know that when God appears, when, when we encounter him in heaven, we shall be like him, says John, for we shall see him as he is. In other words, the moment that you get to heaven, 
you're going to be as close to the magnet as it is ever possible to be. You're going to be as close to God as the angels are now. You're going to see his glory, his wonder, the way they see it now. You're going to find yourself uh, enraptured in the way that the angels are now. You'll fall on your knees in awe and adoration before him, and you will be magnetized by his holiness as God's citizens are right now. And the Apostle Paul puts it like this. I declare to you that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. The rust is too thick. Nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. But listen, says Paul, I tell you a mystery. In another translation, he says, let me let tell you a wonderful secret. We will all be changed. When you leave your flesh behind and your soul goes on to heaven, you get contact with God fully and forever. And what is left of the corrosion of sin will be dissolved. It will disappear. You will be so close to God in heaven that the orientation of your soul will be utterly realigned and permanently magnetized to the vector of his kingdom. In other words, the process of being made holy that's going on in this life, um, the, the theologians call it sanctification, will be completed in heaven with your final glorification. That's the Christian doctrine of glorification. It's, I've been using the, the, the image here, it's total remagnetization is what happens. And what that means is that the glorious character of God becomes yours entirely. You love God with all that you are. You desire uh, intimacy with him. You, you're, you're passionately concerned to soak him in at every moment. You are are able now to love other people perfectly, and they you. You are longing to bless them at every moment. You're not afraid of them. You're not defended against them. You're not positioning yourself or preening yourself. You are completely in love with God and with other people when you're glorified. And you do not have to work at it. It is effortless. It is simply your way now because it is his. It is his. It is his. And I, I think for me, that would be fine if it were the end of the story. I mean, for me, the thought of becoming actually purely loving and being surrounded by people that are purely loving, that just feels like heaven. And I've just occasionally caught a glimpse of it, and it feels so wonderful. But that's not all there is. The Bible says that what is coming is even more wonderful than that. 
The scriptures teach that there's going to come a day when God brings about an end to history as we have known it and begins something new. When he does, all of humanity, both those who have died, Abraham, right? Somebody in your family you've lost recently or a friend, those who have died, and those who are still living upon the earth will be raised bodily and will stand before him, Jesus, for a final moment, a decisive moment of reckoning. And I know that many of us have serious questions about that, what the Bible calls the day of the Lord or the day of judgment. We've got lots of questions about that. What happens then? Who goes? Where and why? You know, we've got questions. I know, I've been getting letters already in this series, people asking questions. Oh, when are you going to talk about this? Next week. And the week after. We're going to go after some some of that. What I want to explore with you in closing today, however, is the meaning of the word heaven as the Bible uses it in the third way. You may remember from last week I said there are three different senses of heaven in the Bible. The first is the, is the location of the, the place of divine provision from which all of the graces of our life come. That's sort of one sense of the word heaven when it's used in the Bible. Second is that place where God dwells now where our souls go. Uh, the souls of the faithful go at the point of death. Heaven, however, is used in a third sense. It is finally, and in a sense, in its most consummate and fulfilled sense, the future state of life. Where? Right here. Heaven is the future state of life on a new earth. Listen to how the Apostle John describes it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. There was no longer any sea. The message of the Bible is that there's going to come a day when heaven as we have thought of it and the earth as we know it will pass away and the sea of separation between these two realities, the reality of God's purity and glory and the reality of this world that's become something of a a jungle and a a tainted city, the, the separation between those realities will be gone. The ocean of difference between these two realities will be gone. And at that time, the kingdom of heaven that Jesus spoke about, that glorious realm of God where there is love and justice and and compassion and hope and all this fabulous stuff that Jesus' parables describe, at that time, that glorious realm of God which has occasionally broken into this world that we're living in now, that Jesus says we're called to open ourselves to. At that time, that kingdom is going to break through fully and alter the earth forever. It will be a divine invasion, but the kind you'd want, the kind we long for. And this time around, heaven and earth will, in a sense, remarry. The divorce between God and humanity that happened at the fall, the the, the huge separation between God and 
and man and even between people occasioned by the reality of sin gets repaired, gets fixed. And like a shining city on a hill or a, or a bride beautifully dressed and descending a staircase, those who have responded to God's invitation to intimacy with him will descend from the former heaven where their souls have been waiting to take up life on an earth that is new, that is renewed. And this time around, human beings will have a different relationship to God than, than we have now, than we had shortly after Eden began. We will not look at God as sort of a peripheral uh, part of things. God won't be a, the sort of the divine consultant that we go to when we, you know, got to think, need some help with. He won't be the, the power source we plug into and plug out to and run on our own battery power for as long as we can and come back. God will not be some distant entity that just started the universe and kind of sort of checked out. God won't be viewed at that moment as non-existent. Trust me. At that time, God will be at the center of life, the scriptures say. He will dwell at the absolute center of human life again. He will be the radiant, central, energizing reality of life. And the scripture is full of these fabulous images of his glorious presence in the middle of life. We won't draw our identity from marriage or from money or from the opinion of other people anymore. We won't even think to. It'll be just so clear that, that he and his nature is the center of everything. Everything. And his love will fill us up and it will move through us and it will be enough. <laughs> Trust me, it will be absolutely enough for us. And we will forget the pains of our past. <laughs> you know, we rack them up in this life. Pains. Pains. Wounds. And there's a sense that even in, the, in that heaven that our souls go to, that the saints there, the scriptures suggest, or passages that suggest that they're aware of what's happening here on the earth. You know, the Lazarus Dives parable of Jesus in the Gospels give you that sense. They're aware of what's going on earth. They feel it. They feel sadness. They feel something of the pain of this world that is groaning as in childbirth for the fulfillment of God's plan. They feel it at that moment. But when we come to the new heaven and the new earth, all of the pain gets wiped away. All of the residual agony is no more. The Bible says there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. That old order of things will be replaced by justice and rejoicing and absolute security and total peace. And God will give us wisdom, I believe, and perspective that makes sense of the stuff we just couldn't get when we were here. It, there will be ahas. There will be ahas in heaven that will make it okay in, in a way that's hard for us to understand. It will comfort us profoundly. Because he has glorified our nature, we're not going to injure each other anymore. There will be no tears as a result of our injuring each other. It won't happen. We just love each other. And because of what he's going to do with our physical forms, I'll say more about that in a moment, mortality isn't a factor anymore. There's no longer any decay and all the heartache that comes with the decay of this flesh. 
and the tears of this life, he will wipe away. They will be gone in the afterlife. And in that age, the earth will be restored to an Eden-like condition. Revelation 22 says to us, it, the end is at, as at the beginning, is really the message of Revelation. And, and in Revelation 22, we have this vision of a world of both gleaming cities and lush gardens brought together. It's a place where good water flows and food is abundant and the old wounds of war over resources are finally healed And I hope you get some sense that this future, as it's being described, is a wonderfully physical future. It's not some wispy, ethereal spirit world. It's not, you know, sort of floating on the clouds. It's a life of real substance and and, and succulent tastes and and glorious textures. And it's going to require an actual body to live this life. And that is exactly what we get, according to the Bible. A lot of religions posit that if there's an afterlife, it's, it's this spirit realm, not the Bible. For a moment, for a temporary time, until the day of the Lord comes, yes. But after that, no, it's a corporeal existence again. Because this world, this corporeal existence we have, according to the Bible, is good. It's very good. It's a gift of God, and he wants to see us enjoy it as it was meant to be enjoyed. The reason the Apostles' Creed declares, I believe in the resurrection of the body and the life everlasting is because the Apostles had actually seen one of these bodies that I'm talking about. Jesus was wearing one when he appeared to them on Easter morning. And on one level, it was a body a lot like the one you have right now. A lot like it. I mean, Jesus Jesus was able to eat breakfast with it. He was able to go walking on the Emmaus Road with friends in it. He was was able to, to, to be touched when he was in it by Thomas. It's a lot like the one we have. And it is dramatically different from the one we have in other ways. Jesus was able to move through grave clothes in it. He was able to appear behind locked doors in it. Jesus was, was uh, unrecognizable at the start by the disciples because there was something about this body that was also very different. In short, it was an immortal body of the kind that you will receive when the heaven and the earth become as one. So here's the big headline on this. Don't be afraid of death. Okay? Don't be afraid of what you see happening to your body as you move in that direction now. Take good care of this body. Okay, don't get me wrong. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. Take good care of it now, but don't panic that it may be wearing out. Let me tell you a mystery, says Paul. Let me tell you a wonderful secret. God's plan is that you trade in the model you have for a better one. There's going to be an upgrade. If you've 
put your trust in him, you qualify for the upgrade. And in a flash, Paul says, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, the dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed, for by the grace of God, the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And living in these bodies is going to be a glorious experience. I don't think we're just going to sit around. I think it's going to be a life of incredible fullness. I think we're going to create art and music with these new bodies. I I think we're going to invent things and go places and experience the adventure of life together with these totally new realigned hearts and souls and minds with all of our strength. This is your future. It was nearing dusk when a groundskeeper working at a cemetery happened upon a little girl walking through. And he was surprised to see such a small child in such a scary place as it was getting dark. And so he stopped her and he asked her, little girl, aren't you a little little scared being here? And she looked at him quizzically and replied, No, not really. You see, my home is just the other side. Beloved, that's true for you. There may be these moments when walking through this world with its shadows its signs of death shakes your spirit for a moment. But you, beloved, are bound for immortality. Your home is on the other side. Your heavenly Father is there waiting for you. The eternal family will be cheering for you. And Our job for here and now is simply to get as ready as we can in this age for that glorious age that is to come. Please pray with me. Our gracious God, we give you thanks and praise that you have loved us so much that you have given us this life, this extraordinary place where we may begin to learn to love and to live according to your purposes. But keep us, O God, from becoming so enamored with this world that we fail to prepare ourselves for the next.
Guide us today as we go from this place today. Enable us, Lord God, to see your presence with us wherever we go. For holy, holy, holy are you, Lord God Almighty. Enable us, we ask, to become conformed to you. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, Amen.